Welcome back to Serious Epidemiology. I am Haley Bannock, and I'm joined again by my friend and co-host, Dr. Matt Fox from the Boston University School of Public Health. How are you doing, Matt? I'm doing well. It's been a long time since I've seen you. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm really uh, excited to be here today recording this episode because I can tell that I am the geekiest person in the world because the more we get into this modern epi book, the more I want to read. It's like a really good thriller, a beach read perhaps in the in the academic sense that every chapter has new and exciting things to talk about. So so I'm I'm doing really well and excited for this episode. So if you if you had to characterize each chapter of modern epidemiology as a a different genre of literature, what uh, what genre would this chapter be, which we should say is is going to be chapter five on measures of effect and measures of association. Yeah. What would the what would the genre? Is this, is this a murder mystery? Is this, you know, uh, uh, what genre would this be? This has to be some fiction? kind of like historical nonfiction like this is this is dry potentially when you first read it but it's interesting in the same way that history is interesting so so you know it's it's that's what i would say historical nonfiction is my genre so it it may be it may be dry i guess as you say although I, i didn't find it that way but it is definitely i i characterize chapter four as the you have to eat your vegetables before you get to eat dessert chapter. And this is definitely not like this is, it's not quite dessert, but it is, it's getting closer. I think you're mixing metaphors a little bit. We're, we were talking about book genres and then we're talking about dessert. So I'm not really sure where, where that went, but I guess this is a good point to introduce our guest for the episode. So for those of you who have been listening, we are going through the new edition of Modern Epidemiology, the fourth edition in this season of our podcast. And for each chapter, Matt and I have an episode discussing the chapter, what we find interesting, our understanding and interpretation of some of those issues. And then we invite a guest, an expert in in some field to talk to us about how they viewed the chapter. So today we're very lucky and very fortunate to have Dr. Katie Lesko here with us to talk about measures of association and effect. Dr. Lesko is an assistant professor at the Bloomberg School of Public Health at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore. Her research interests include describing and improving clinical outcomes for individuals with HIV particularly as these issues relate to mental health, alcohol use, and substance use. She also has methodological interest in the application and development of theory for estimating policy. So what are some patient-relevant health effects from observational data? Uh, Welcome, Katie. We're pleased to have you today. Hey, thanks for having me on. I'm really pleased to be here. Before we get started with the, you know, the nitty gritty of the chapter, we like to ask our guests a few lighter questions so people can get to know you. Something I have noticed as I read through these chapters is that they reference papers and I go to the reference list of every chapter and remind myself, oh, I should reread that paper. Oh, that sounds like an interesting paper to read. So the first question I have for you is, are there any epi papers that you read or reread uh, every year? Or if there aren't any, are there any papers that you think you should read or reread every year? Oh, that's a good question. And I wish I had like a fantastic answer for this. 
just a little plug for the SCR symposium that, that Matt and I hosted in 2021. That's the year we're in. Uh, where so. Sonia Swanson rereads Jamie Robbins' 86 paper every year. And I um, struggled to get through it once. But <laughs> I, <laughs> I, there are definitely papers I should probably reread every year. I do actually reread ME3 and now um, read ME4 quite regularly mm. and go back to course notes from Charlie Poole's epi class at UNC. Um, and so a lot of Charlie's papers when thinking about measures of effect and, and measures of association. So I'm really excited to be talking about this chapter. There are a couple of other papers that I've had to reread regularly to make sure I understand them, given some of the things that I've been thinking about with respect to generalizability and effect heterogeneity and, and selection bias, including Daniel Westreich's 2012 paper on Berkson's bias and selection bias and Miguel's 2017 paper on selection bias. There is one other, two other papers that I want to plug in, in thinking about this. There's paper by Steve Cole and others in AJE in 2020 on hidden imputations in the Kaplan-Meier estimator. I was lucky enough to see a pre, not even preprint, but a pre-submission draft of this in my doctoral program when I, when I took Steve Cole's class. And that blew my mind, really thinking about how the Kaplan-Meier estimator is imputing event times for people who are censored or uh, late entered into uh, into a survival analysis. So I really recommend that one. And it's really shaped how I think about um, time to event analyses. And then the, the last paper that I think that I should reread every year, but um, is one that I think about a, a lot, um, is Jess Edwards' 2015 paper on all your data are always missing. So Really, I think the theme here is thinking about how how our data that we're that we're basing a lot of analyses on or all of our analyses on came to be, and what the ideal data is that that we don't we don't ever have how how the missing data there informs our our conclusions. Such great papers, such good recommendations. I definitely have to go back to the Kaplan Meyer one because I read that only once and I definitely need to go back to that one. There there's a really fantastic table in there and if you turn it into an excel spreadsheet you can actually do the imputations yourself uh, and it, it's really fascinating to kind of work through. I guess that wasn't such a light question to start off the episode but but it does help <laughs> it does help inform sort of who you are I think, you know, by knowing which papers you're you're really into it it gives us a sense of of the type of research that you I guess you think is, you know, valuable to learn more about. So, so thanks for sharing that. Yeah. An actual light question, pretending that we're in a, a make-believe world where you could choose to be an Olympic athlete. Um, if you could choose to compete in any sport, either summer or winter, has no bearing on real life, uh, what sport would it be and why? That is a tricky one. So the, the boring answer is I, I was a collegiate rower. Oh, and I hmm. really, really in, have a love-hate relationship with that sport. Um, <laughs> so I, I think that, you know, I the feeling of being in an eight, so it's a eight rowers and one coxswain, it's the biggest boat in the, in the, that rowers compete in. Um, the feeling of being in an eight and like charging down the course is really spectacular. It feels a little bit like you're flying that just the, the, you have to all be in sync and like the synergy and 
the power that you can generate um, with eight people all working together is really, really fun. Um, that said, one of my pandemic purchases was a rowing machine since I <laughs> quit my gym membership. And I really struggle to get on it because it's a uniquely painful sport <laughs> as well. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So rowing. I, that's interesting because you're the first guest that we've had on, I think. Apologies to the other guests, but I think you're the first guest that has actual athletic talent on our, our podcast, potentially, in that you are a collegiate rower, which is super cool. And that sensation that you're describing of all eight people rowing together, it you don't get you can't really tell that from watching it on TV. You can see they're going fast, but but I can imagine how exhilarating that experience would be. So I would watch you in the Olympics and I, I, you know, I hope you can still have a chance to maybe, maybe go for that dream. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm pretty tall. I'm five, eight, five, nine, but I was just not really tall enough to, to entertain dreams that would really come true. I think most of those women are, you know, six, six feet or, or taller is really what you want. Yeah. That said, I I should just disabuse anybody from the notion that I have any other athletic talent. I'm, I'm stubborn, but I have no hand-eye coordination. I can't, you know, you don't, don't pick me to be on your dodgeball team. It's a bad choice. Oh, I actually think we should, we should, we should have a dodgeball game with everybody who's been on this podcast. I, I would, I would pick you. I'd pick you too. You would be sorely disappointed, but I appreciate the vote of confidence. <laughs> I mean, rowing has to require some kind of hand-eye coordination. The thing is, you never let go of the oar. So once once my hand is on the oar, I'm like pretty good with it. But don't ask but, me to catch anything. <laughs> okay, that's fair. But you have yeah. to make your legs go at the same time as your arms, as the same time as the other people in the boat. That's that's a pretty mm-hmm. high level of coordination. But but I promise I won't throw anything at you in our our podcast recording. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So are you all are you all like me, where you watch the Olympics and you pretend? Like you can do exactly what they're doing, except for one tiny little bit, and that's why you're not in the Olympics. Like I watch the, I watch the the gymnastic routines, and you know, like, you know, if it wasn't for the fact that on that 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 triple flip there, I tend to over rotate. I would be in the Olympics right now. No, nope, no, never had that. Nope. That's I look at me. them. Yeah, I look at them. I'm like, I cannot believe you make your body do that or get you know you no, can it is do unbelievable. that. Yeah, All right. the gymnastics That's... especially. Yeah, I agree. Oh, it's amazing what they do. It is so mm-hmm. amazing. My, okay. my three, well, four-year-old now has been watching the gymnastics. She really, really is like dying to be a gymnast and she doesn't have any skill. Uh, hopefully she won't listen to this later and feel like I've discounted <laughs> her abilities. But it's very cute. Yeah. I just I just um, put a, a note in my calendar for, <laughs> for five years from now to play this back again for your for your daughter. Uh-huh. Well, there's still time for her, you know. Yeah, I, I think even in gymnastics, three going on four is still at the early age, even for a sport that you know takes really young athletes. All right, enough about the Olympics because I think we could talk about this in banter. We have serious things to talk about, which is chapter five of the textbook. So the The title is Measures of Effect and Measures of Association. And this chapter goes from sort of a more theoretical sort of discussion at the beginning. And and they talk about what is an effect. 
And then they go into talking about measures of association, how we calculate risk ratios and, and rates, et cetera. But, but the first thing we start off with is how we get at causation or how we start to get at causation. So one of the last conversations we had, we talked about the idea of no causation without manipulation. So I wanted to get your sense of where you fall on that spectrum. I know lots of people have different perspectives on that phrase, and I just wanted to get your thoughts on it. So I think the the, the saying no causation without manipulation is kind of an inflammatory statement. Um, and so I can understand why some people chafe at that suggestion. And I think that the reason that we struggle with this is because we're not always clear in epi about the dis- difference between measuring the effect of something or thinking about things as causes of an effect. So I think that, you know, in the example in the book, they talk about whether or not gender has an effect on CVD. And I think it's clear that gender has an effect on cardiovascular disease. And, and that's clear to me. So I, I don't, I don't see any reason that gender can't cause um, an outcome without, without being able to manipulate it. And I think that, that suggesting that they can't be causes just because we can't imagine changing them, it, it might feel a little akin to gaslighting for women and, and transgender and non-binary people. And so, so I understand why that, that statement causes um, some consternation for people. I think that the, the bigger question is, for me, understanding that gender is associated with a differential risk of CBD or understanding that gender might be a cause that we might, um, we might be interested in. The question as epidemiologists is how we might improve public health. And for that, I think we need to think about how we're, where we're going to intervene um, and whether that's uh, you know, thinking about changing someone's hormones or changing more likely sort of gender bias or um, gender discrimination. I think that the idea of causation being tied to manipulation helps us think think about improving public health. But I don't I don't think that it precludes us thinking about causes that are not manipulable in our theoretical frameworks. And so uh, I, that's really interesting to me because I I think that's a, a a really important point that you raise and probably not the way that I'm completely used to thinking about it and I'm I, I'm just curious you know how you think about this idea I mean so clearly as you say measuring association is what whether we call it association or or causation it, it's pretty clear that certain populations have have differences in risk of outcomes and therefore our job is to do something about it as as public health professionals. So is it your view that by using a phrase like no causation without manipulation, we're sort of putting things that are really important from a public health perspective in a, a lesser category, and therefore the phrase is problematic just because at, at the end of the day, it doesn't change the fact that we have an obligation to to approach the problem to improve health? Yeah, I think so. And I think that... Um... You know, there, there's something else worth saying here is I think that we and, and I, I will preface this by saying, you know, I'm I'm someone who trained in quote unquote causal inference and I, I run in those circles and I I try to use the potential outcomes framework and DAGs and, and all of that to, to better inform my work. But I do think that we almost have this tyranny of of causal inference in general in our in our field. Um, and not necessarily a specific framework. That's not what I'm 
calling out more so than than the idea that we tend to think about the value of associations only as giving us hints about causality. And I think that there's value in looking at associations in and of themselves. Um, and that's one of the things that that I was kind of disappointed in this chapter because, you know, I, I don't, by lumping together measures of association and measures of effect or the, the assumptions needed to imbue a measure of association with a causal, a causal meaning, I think that we, we discount the value of associations in and of themselves. And so I do think that we have first and foremost, an obligation to look at associations and to understand where the burden of disease is lying and where even the, the, the burden of harmful exposures are, are lying. There's, there's plenty of reasons to look at associations um, independent of trying to, to draw causal inference from them. I agree completely with that statement. And I, I think it's interesting, Matt, a moment ago, you said something like, as public health professionals, it's incumbent upon us to improve the health of populations or something like that. And, and this comes back to a debate we've had previously about the definition of, of epidemiology, right? So is the, quote, definition of epidemiology the study of the distribution and determinants of disease frequency in human populations? Or is it is the more important aspect the application to, to improving human health? And I think there is tremendous value. I, I don't see myself necessarily as an epidemiologist who does a ton of that application work to public health. I study associations sometimes, and that's okay, and of no less value than the causal work that I do other times, right? And so I, I think it is a, a issue worth discussing, and I, I think I fall in Katie's camp on this one. Yeah, I, I would just, I would add to that. The earlier chapters of the book make it make it very I mean, they they seem like they go to extended lengths to not lessen the value of of descriptive epidemiology. And yet at the same time, the focus of the book is not on descriptive epidemiology. And there's no chapter that is specifically devoted to descriptive epidemiology, except in that Haley and I have discussed and I have come to realize Chapter four, the chapter before this, is about measures of disease frequency that, that could be building blocks towards causation, but they could be just simply measures in their own right as used for surveillance, for descriptive epi, whatever it is that you're interested in. But, I, you know, it would be you know, sort of nice to see a, um, a more formal discussion of why measures of association might be important even outside of, of causal relationships. Something that I found a bit that jumped out at me from the chapter is the idea that they refer to the risk ratio as the causal risk ratio and the risk difference as the causal risk difference. And, you know, typically when I see somebody writing about these concepts, I just read the risk difference or the, the risk ratio. So do you think that that modifier causal risk difference or causal risk ratio is important? Is it uh, necessary for the authors to have included that uh, in the chapter, Katie? I do think that it is always good to be clear about what it is that we're trying to estimate, but I'm not sure that I have a whole lot more opinion other than, yeah, it does, it does feel like there's a very quick slide from these measures of association, which would just be your risk ratio or your risk difference comparing two populations 
to a causal risk ratio or a causal risk difference with the, the idea that somehow we have managed to jump into this uh, hy- hypothetical imaginary world where we're comparing um, one population under two different exposure conditions. It's so interesting because, you know, the, I mean, the textbook is modern epidemiology. It's not modern causal inference. And yet I would say, you know, sort of where where it feels to me like this early chapters of the book are building towards is is really about causation, not about, you know, epidemiologic methods in general. Now, again, there are there are whole chapters on on surveillance and things like that. So I don't want to imply that it, it, it is not in there, but it, it would be, you know, it'd be, it'd be cool to see future versions of this book, you know, really make that distinction, uh, cl- you know, clear, and then really talk about the cases where we would care about associational measures and think about the biases that can creep in even in associational measures. So it's, it's, I think it's a really important point. That's kind of the first thing that jumped out at me from the chapter. Katie, what jumped out to you from this chapter? What did you find, you know, particularly useful or or helpful or maybe insightful from this chapter? So I think that the the part of the reason that I would have loved to see this split into two chapters, one on measures of association and one on measures of effect, is because I think that the thing that I love about this chapter and the thing you know, if we go back to the beginning of what um, genre of book or literature this would be, it's to me, it's almost kind of a, a mystery, right? Like uh-huh. not, to, not to overly confuse people, but I think that the, the relationship between the risk ratio, the rate ratio, the odds ratio, and how those things change, how we would expect each of these measures of association to change as the baseline risk changes, to me is really, really fascinating. And I think that it's something that I always feel like I could use more facility with. And I think that it's something that, that we as epidemiologists should, should have really solid um, understanding of the mathematical properties of these measures of association. So, you know, having a solid understanding of the odds ratio will always be further from the null than the rate ratio will always be further from the null than the, than the risk ratio or that the it's, it's not explicitly in this chapter in, in a way that's really clear, but, you know, along those lines, part of, part of the reason that I like to reread modern epi and think about Charlie Poole's um, course notes is thinking about the, the fact that the risk ratio is bounded as the baseline risk increases. So I can, I can say maybe just very quickly as a concrete example, I'm a collaborator on a study right now where we're looking at the probability of engagement in HIV care before and after telemedicine was implemented in the, in the Hopkins HIV clinic in response to the COVID pandemic. And we were, we're interested in retention, right? Um, but the, the probability of retention in the clinic is already really high. It was 88% pre-pandemic. But we want retention, we need retention to be even higher in order to have any meaningful impact on the, the, the HIV epidemic, upwards of 90%. So if we're, number one, thinking about what outcome to model, you know, I would really like to focus on the outcome of interest, which is retention, rather than trying to focus on a, a lack of retention just in order to to have the the outcome be rare, right? But once you focus on on retention, the odds ratios, any odds ratios looking at what what quote unquote risk factors are are associated with retention, the odds ratios are astronomical. 
if you look instead at risk ratios, which thankfully the, the student that I'm working on decided that, that we should do, the risk ratios are far more conservative. And we even had a reviewer on one of the, the first um, places we submitted it saying these are all really like nothing associations. Mm-hmm. But that's because with a baseline retention of 88%, the risk ratio is bounded at something like 1.2. So, um, you know, being able to think through all of these things and, and um, think through what it is that you want to model and what you might expect to find, I, I think is really something that should be in our, our skill set as epidemiologists, in particular, when we start to collaborate with folks who, who like clinical collaborators and things that, that don't have as much facility with that. I mean, I could go off on another tangent about the the association or the the effect of person time on our measures of of effect. Oh, do oh, please do. We, yes, yeah, we, yeah. we, we struggled we with both, it, so please, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the the other thing that I think is is purely a, a mathematical um, problem, you know, that we can completely ignore all of the causal assumptions, but should have a better understanding as epidemiologists of the, the fact that our, our measures of effect, all of them are functions of the time horizon across which we're measuring people, right? Um, because as time progresses, the, the outcomes continue to accrue and our risk difference, our risk ratio, our rate ratio, odds ratio, all will change as we continue to follow people over time. So I think we tend to we tend to tell students or remind students that the risk um, you have to you have to give a time um, over which a risk was measured, but we don't we don't spend the same amount of energy reminding them that they should also give a time over which their risk ratio was measured. Um, you know, the one year risk ratio for any exposure of of death is going to be very different. In, in humans, I should say, is going to be very different from the 100-year risk ratio for, for death for any exposure, which presumably will be something close to one, right? So it's interesting because they the chapter does have some discussion of this topic, but it's under the heading, the, the competing risks section, where they talk about how uh, an exposure like smoking cessation, and I think the outcome they use is being hit by a drunk driver. So smoking cessation may increase your time alive, therefore increasing your risk of being hit by a drunk driver. So I think that that is both a competing risks problem, but also um, related to the issue that you just mentioned about time alive at risk in order to be hit by that drunk driver. You have to think about what are the competing causes of death in that context, but also the fact that you're just extending someone's life so they might be hit by the drunk driver. Yeah, yeah. I think that the the, the issue that I'm talking about is hidden in this chapter a little bit. And so I definitely am reading between the lines and, and happy to talk more about the competing risk problem and and, and thinking about you know, I think that we as epidemiologists understand that the increased risk of being hit by a drunk driver following participation in a successful participation in a smoking cessation problem is part of the effect of that smoking cessation program. But I don't think that the lay public would would agree with that interpretation, right? That when they're thinking about effects, I think they're usually probably thinking about some sort of biological um, mechanism. You know, it's it's not that stopping smoking has somehow biologically changed your your 
constitution that makes you more likely to get hit by a car. Um, it's just purely a function of, of changing time. So, so that's actually really interesting because my interpretation of that you know, part of the chapter was actually much more of the, the lay interpretation. Like I, I did not think of that uh, the, the, the effect of the smoking cessation program uh, increasing your risk for being hit by a drunk driver as a real causal effect, um, even though, you know, leaving aside the issue of, of biologic versus non-biologic effects, I just sort of didn't didn't really think of it as an effect of the the smoking cessation campaign at all. But it, it seems like you're saying it, it, it sort of really it would be part of the effect. It's just not a biologic effect. Yeah, I, I think that that's sort of... Um... This is an area where I think there's sort of active debate. So Steve Cole has a pair of papers in about 2017-ish, maybe, an AJE. The first one is just called Risk. And then there's a second one that's far more um, useful. The Risk one is very pithy and and, um, theoretical. But then the second one talks about how to calculate a, um, a, a risk in the presence of competing events. And I think in those papers, they that that group of authors really lays out a, a sense that um, you know by by stopping smoking, you have changed your risk of getting hit by a drunk driver, and so that is part of the effect of the smoking cessation program. That said, I also work with some some collaborators who really have argued with me for a long time that the the causal they argue that the cause specific hazard ratio is the most sort of fundamental causal parameter because the the cause specific hazard ratio would not show an effect of the smoking cessation program on your risk of drunk driving because it's, it's sort of only among survivors i think i think that that would be the case um and so I have come to understand that's why they have this pre- preference for for cause specific hazard ratios, which you know have certainly been maligned by by other folks in our field as subject to selection bias and all sorts of other bad things. Because it's always calculated among people who have survived to a particular point in time, um, it, it 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 is subject to selection bias, but it also if you try to simulate it, you'll see. Like if you try to try to write a simulation, kind of, you'll see that that. Um, I think I think that you you kind of have to have some sort of biologic effect in order to in order to change the cost specific hazard ratio. Okay, but you know, but this is where I start to think there are so many nuances to the effect measures or associational measures, whatever you're going to present that we present in in our papers that you know probably most of us don't even know and even amongst those who do i suspect you know much of the time we we just ignore it and i wonder i wonder how much in practice we think it actually matters or are these things that you know in in most real life situations can occur but really probably only you know lead to minimal differences in the thing we want to measure compared to the thing we are measuring so that's a great question, and I'm the short answer is I'm not sure. Right. Um, the longer answer is I suspect that they do have more and more of an effect than most people think that they have, but mm. less of an effect than you know we might be 
inciting people to <laughs> leave with this conversation, right? <laughs> the other thing I was going to say about person time that's it's sort of in this chapter, but as like one or two lines about the, the type one people in the, the causal types, right? Type yep. one people were the doomed people. And there's a bit in there about how even if we're classifying people as doomed, the exposure can have an effect on yes. their outcome by mm-hmm. moving moving their outcome forward in time. Um, but as long as the, the timing of the outcome is both under exposure and not exposure is both before whenever you're drawing your, your arbitrary sort of time horizon cut point, you know, two years, whatever, that person's going to be doomed. But I think that, you know, if we now recognizing that this is only chapter five, and so the authors are certainly trying to simplify things by making everything dichotomous. Did you have the outcome or not by the, the end point? Um, I think that, that that type one doomed person where the exposure actually has an effect, we would capture that in some of our other measures of association or measures of effect, right? Like we would see a difference in their person time contribution if we were calculating rates we would see a difference in the survival function if we were actually plotting the survival curve over the entire follow-up time. Um, we would see a difference in the the restricted mean survival time as like another measure of association or measure of effect that we could put out there. And so I think this is where, um, yeah, I, I think that this is our job as epidemiologists, our contribution to, to some of these study teams is to have a sense of have a really good solid understanding of these measures of association and how they capture different things. That's so well said and I I really appreciate you bringing this this point up because you know when so you know when you talk about type 1s and you know doomed and, and immune we're, we're talking about the counterfactual model there and it you know the way the counterfactual model has always been presented to me is you know as you you said there, you know, if we, we have a, an exposure, non-exposure comparison, or you've set up your two conditions, and then you have an outcome that is defined at some point in time, and we just compare whether or not the outcomes at the end of that time are different. But, you know, how does the, how does the counterfactual model then, how do we adapt that to things like person time measures? Or do we, is person time measures really just sort of the way we operationalize things? And the real difference would be in terms of the counterfactual model, if you just change the time horizon of the outcome. So let's say, you know, in the example you gave, the outcome occurs under exposure at five years, but under non-exposure at three years. If my outcome is defined at, at six years, then the person is doomed. If it's defined at four years, it's uh, what, causal or preventive? Preventive? No, causal. Preventive. And that if it's, uh, you know, at two years, the person is immune. Is is that how you would think about it? Or is there a way that we could adapt the counterfactual model to person time, person time? I don't, I don't, I don't even truly have the question formulated well, because I don't know exactly what I'm, what it is you would do in that model under a person time type design. So I think that you could... Um, I think that you could classify or, or write down potential outcomes as the the actual time. It does get more complicated. And so again, I, I just want to give credence to the fact that this is chapter five, right? 
Um, and we have to start somewhere. So I don't think that it's, I don't think it's the worst thing in the world to, to dichotomize these potential outcomes and present them um, in the way that the authors have done. And certainly there's a lot of helpful things that I think that we have um, discovered or realized about our field by, by doing this. That said, I think that, you know, tying this back to measures of association and, and understanding the math, I think that we think of the canonical figure in epidemiology as this two by two table. Um, and I can't take credit for this idea. I think Daniel Westrake is also peddling it. But the, the idea that the, the canonical figure maybe should be um, a survival function. Right. Um, and then some of these things become, uh, be, because we haven't oversimplified the, the, the function that we're trying to simplify by drawing some arbitrary vertical line through it, um, we, we don't get some of these points of confusion. Oh, so that's that, that's really helpful because, of course, I you're right. I'm thinking about it in terms of dichotomies. You could have a potential outcomes model that is focused on time to event. I, I don't know how you deal with people who, who don't get the event, but certainly we could think about average, you know, average time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, do, I don't have a whole lot to add to that other than to sort of bring it full circle. I think that, you know, you can you can draw your survival curve out as far as you have data and then think about the survival curve for the exposed, the unexposed, and whether you think those are counterfactual exposure on non-exposure or just associational survival curves. I think that's fine. And then you can compare the two curves. Uh, I think the nice part about the curves also is that you're very much forced to look at your data and think about how far how how long you've you followed people, and so this gets back to um, the the point that I was making before that all of these measures of association and measures or effect are functions of the the follow up time. Um, it's harder to ignore when you have to plot that and you know label your x axis. So all of these issues you know related to time on study and and time as it relates to the outcome lead me to make the following confession. And the following confession is that I really struggle a lot of the time with person time beyond that little figure that we've all seen from Intro Epi where you have a couple, you know, 10 lines and they're each varying lengths, and you drag them to the the y-axis, and then you count them. Which, um, which I have already confessed in my intro epi course almost caused me to quit epidemiology. Yeah, so so I think you know at its very basic level, which I think is where I'm stuck. It's a it's an important intuitive idea. How long has somebody stayed in your study? When you have this little infographic, sure, I get it. When you get beyond to even, you know, chapter five in, in Modern Epi, um, bearing in mind that this is sort of still one of the intro chapters of the textbook, I still struggle a lot with this concept. And so, you know, Katie, how how do you think about person time when you are calculating measures of association and measures of effect? And if you would go one step further than that, I think the more potentially more important issue related to person time is loss to follow-up and those who are no longer contributing person time to your study and how you think about that issue as well. First, dial back a little bit, because I think that there 
are certainly areas of study where person time is not as easily captured or where, you know, it's, it's sometimes less relevant, right? You know, if you, if, if you're looking at a point exposure and, and sort of a point outcome, then person time probably can be, can, can be disregarded. That said, then my, my follow-up answer to your question is actually <laughs> that, that I also struggle with it too, from a very sort of philosophical standpoint. Um, and I'm going to take this probably further than, than you were hoping, um, that, you know, we exist in a world that is an open population in which people keep being born, uh, and people keep dying. And, and most of the discussion we've had about person time in our studies, we, artificially create these closed populations, at least where they're closed on the on the left. And I think that that's really important to do a lot of times, right? Like I, I think that there there's some really key examples of how if we don't properly specify time zero, we can get really funky biased results to our studies. And I think that we generally make decisions at a particular point in time, you know, to, to take this drug, start taking this drug or not take this drug or to buckle up your seatbelt when you get in the car for this ride or, or not. We, we make decisions at the point in time in which we exist. So I don't think that that's, that's as big of a problem. But when I think about, you know, trying to apply our study results, population that we're trying to intervene on keeps changing. And so from, from a very philosophical standpoint, I, I think about person time a lot and how that's changing our target population. But as far as like, you know, back to standard study design, if we think about time zero as the place where we would make a decision, take drug A versus take drug B, buckle up versus not, um, attend this study visit or the, this clinic visit versus versus not, then we just sort of follow people through time. Uh, I don't think we get away from, I, th- I think we can create a study population that's closed on the on the left a lot of times. And, and a lot of times that's really helpful to do. I don't think we can get away from a study population being open on the right. The, that we're, you know, people are fickle. They don't do exactly what you want them to do. <laughs> they're not going to return for clinic visits or study visits, or they're going to move out of the state. You, we're not draconian. We can't stop them from doing that. I think then the the bigger issue for us last to follow up, if I could get us as a field to do one thing, is to to think clearly about what last to follow up means for us, and whether it's a censoring event or whether it's a, it's a competing event or is what what is it? I think we tend to just treat it always as if it's a censoring event and estimate. This is a gross gross generalization, but. We estimate our measure of association in the data that we have, which is assuming that the people who are lost to our study have the same outcome as the people who stay, which is usually not a good assumption. And the, the thing I was alluding to is that sometimes being lost to our study, if we're, if we're in a clinical, if we're using a clinical cohort, being lost to study means like no, no longer having access to um, the exposure drug that we're studying or, you know, no longer having the same quality of healthcare, things like that. Yeah, it's it's an assumption that obviously, you know, uh, censoring is not informative. You know, we believe those who dropped out have similar outcomes, etc. 
but it's it's patently false almost all of the time, you know, and, and so it's one of these token phrases that people throw into their discussion section um, with it being almost certainly false all almost all of the time. Yeah. And I think that even when we try to um, when when we try to address it using something like inverse probability of censoring weights or, or, or something like that to to address that, we're intervening on our study population in a, in a sort of theoretical sense, right? We're saying like, here's what the effect of my exposure would have been if I had been able to force everybody to stay in my study. And, and the people that dropped out did have the same outcomes as the people who stayed in. Um, and that that's kind of a funny assumption as well on the flip side, right? It's a very funny assumption. I mean, I you know, it always seems to me the argument that's made around... Um, you know, between not make around not making that assumption that that you know they would have what not asking the question what would have happened if they'd stayed is well we want to know what happens in in you know in, in real life situations where people make their own decisions that feels to me a little like a stretch because probably you know what people are going to do is going to be different depending on the population but I'm very sympathetic to the idea that you know. If, if we can't even in a study keep people taking a particular drug, that it, it's probably doesn't make all that much sense to try and ask the question, what would happen if we could? Because it doesn't give us, you know, it doesn't pertain to anyone, any population in real world conditions. Okay, so I think it's it's pretty clear at this point, certainly for Matt and I, to a much less degree to Katie, time is a very confusing concept. Um, and Time is fickle. Time is complicated, and uh, you know, perhaps in our training, this is something that we we need to do more of: is is thinking through very carefully through these issues related to time. In the the textbook, it then goes through um, these confounding related um, topics, where they do a, I think a nice job of connecting measures of association to measures of effect explaining how confounding can interfere with that sort of jump from association to effect. But I I think Matt and I talked about those issues a lot when we recorded. So I'd like to skip forward a little bit more to this pretty small section that they have on effect measure modification. Uh, And in brackets, they write heterogeneity. So that's on page 91 of the textbook. So Katie, I guess my first question for you is that when I teach this in my intro epi class, on first glance, I teach a very simple example where, you know, you have your your population, you stratify on a variable that you think might be an effect modifier. And if the effect estimate you're interested in is different in the two strata you have in this very simple example, there would be effect measure modification. And inevitably, a student will raise their hand and ask me, how different do the strata need to be from each other for there to be effect modification? And every year I have to stumble, well, you know, they don't have to be, you know, the exact same. We're not talking about, you know, same to the third decimal place, but, you know, they want to be a bit different. And and this is a concept that I struggle with when I am teaching to give a good example. So if you were teaching the class that I teach, or maybe you do teach a similar type of class, how would you explain how much difference there needs to be between strata for something to be heterogeneous? 
That's a good question. And I, um, so I do also teach a lecture on effect measure modification. And I should preface my response by saying that I don't think that my students like it very much. Mine either. <laughs> Mine either. So that's why I'm hoping that you have some solution for me. Um, I, I do think that there, I, I don't know where this distinction arose, but I do think it's helpful. There, somewhere in in a subfield of our discipline, folks are making a distinction between qualitative and quantitative effect measure modification. And so there are certainly examples where, you know, the the exposure that we're thinking of has effects that go in the opposite direction. And that's clearly something that we we would really care about. And I've thought a lot about this and I I think that we don't find qualitative effect measure modification very often because we intuitively exclude populations from our studies where we think that the exposure is going to have the opposite effect, right? So like if we think about seatbelts, seatbelts universally beneficial, right? Protect you if you get in a car crash, except if you're a small child riding in the front seat, right? So we don't... um, I don't know who's doing studies on, on seatbelts anymore, but if if you were to do a trial of seatbelts, you wouldn't enroll small children and put them in the front seat because we expect that the, the effect of the seatbelt is going to be qualitatively different for that subpopulation. Or if we're thinking about the effect of, in the great example, um, the, the effect of antiretroviral therapy for a long time um, was had, had enough um, significant side effects that there was a debate of, of whether people with HIV needed to wait um, to start antiretroviral therapy because it could be it could do more harm than good. I think that we've done the trials to 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 um, well I know we've done the trials to prove that to be incorrect that that antiretroviral therapy has a benefit for everyone living with HIV and we should start people right away. But the the magnitude of the effect. Um, is different if you have a CD4 count of 20 um, and severely compromised immune system versus a CD4 cell count of 500, right? Um, because your baseline risk is uh, for, for mortality or AIDS is very, very different at those two um, CD4 cell counts. So I, th- I think that we know that, that we, we do a pretty decent job of understanding what the patient characteristics or the circumstances are that cause that, that would be problems for our for our treatment under study and and oftentimes we'll just exclude people for whom we would find a bigger meaning, meaningful difference of the effect and and other times we you know it, it is hard to say when we're talking about qualitative effect measure modification what is meaningful very briefly the other epiphany that i had about effect measure modification that hurts my brain every time I think about it is the idea that every single um, risk factor for the outcome is going to modify the effect of interest on at least one scale. Oh, this kills me. This is, I am with you. So we teach our students, it's like this conflict I feel every time I teach the class, like effect measure modification is meaningful if you find it. But then on the other hand, it's It's always there. (laughs) It's always there. So when is it meaningful? And I think that you know, the answer to that is to that conundrum is sort of, it depends. Like, are you going to change your treatment guidelines based on this? Are you, are you going to modify your intervention? Are you going to target your intervention? Do you have the resources to intervene on everybody? Um, or do you only have 
you know, enough money to intervene in half the population, in which case you might, you might want to identify the group where the treatment has a bigger effect. So like, what's your, what's your goal when you're thinking about um, identifying treatment effect heterogeneity? And then my last little blurb is if you're, if you are going to modify treatment recommendations, or you are going to target your exposure, then we really need to be looking at effect measure modification on an absolute scale, because you can otherwise get very wrong results, right? You can have sub multiplicative effect measure modification and assume that the effect is more um, potent in one group than another, um, but it can be super additive and that can be, you could be wrong. You could be targeting um, the, the wrong group in order to have the maximum impact. You have just in a brief two minute interval described what I think are the three most difficult teaching points when teaching about this topic, which is the one I identified with how much difference is there, you know, does there need to be for it to be EMM? The fact that it's always present on one scale versus another. And the third point, which is that for public health planning and, and you know, use of resources, we should be looking on the additive scale. I find that that's a topic that students also really struggle with. I can give an example. I think in my class, I use asbestos and smoking. You know, there's an example. I think it comes out of the school and Nieto textbook, where it's much worse if you are a smoker who also has been exposed to asbestos, and we want to target our public health resources to help those people to get maximum effect. But this idea of that being important, or us focusing on the additive scale, I find is another really complicated thing for, for students to understand. Matt, what's been your experience with these topics? Exactly the same. I mean, I, I think that we all come to to these challenges, because as you both pointed out, you're very likely to find effect modification on one scale or the other. Anytime there is an effect of your exposure and the outcome, it, you know you have to figure out whether or not it matters and how much it matters. And so, framing in terms of, you know, I always framed in terms of, would you make a different decision based on these numbers, while also factoring in the fact that, you know, even if this were a perfectly done randomized trial. There's going to be random error, you know, in the the fact that your two parameters, your two effect measures within straight of some third variable differ. So you just sort of have to, you know, you have to just sort of over time get good at figuring out how you would interpret these and whether or not you would change your your decision making based on them. Yeah. So so two more quick stories from my my teaching experience. One is. Yeah, I, I 100% agree that the students don't like the idea that they have to look at the additive scale because it's an extra step, right? All of our, most of our models are multiplicative. I tried to teach the um, RERI, relative excess risk due to interaction, and, and they hated me for the entire rest of the term. <laughs> like, this is the stupidest thing. So I don't, I don't have a good solution for how we, how we do this in a way that doesn't um, cause our students pain. but. Uh, as for the question of is this meaningful and and how do we determine that, I, I just want to draw attention. There's a really great paper by um, Pito, I think is the is the lead author, but it's a consortium, so it doesn't um, show up if you Google that way. I could I could provide the the citation in a minute, but basically he did this this study randomized trial looking at I think aspirin and some other drug on risk of heart attack. And the the journal editors asked him to 
look at all of these factors to, to check for effect measure modification across all of these different factors. And, you know, when you start to, when you start to look that way, you have, well, the one place where I think p-values are useful sometimes is to compare two stratum-specific estimates of effect and decide whether or not they're, they're statistically significantly different, right? But once you start looking at all of these different strata, you're, you're increasing your type, type 1 error rate and likely to find spurious effects. And so the story goes that PETO didn't want to do this, but the, the journal editors insisted in order to publish the paper. And so he has a very nice table in the paper where he's stratified by sex and age and, and, and everything. But he also threw in this little Easter egg where he's stratified by um, astro- astrological sign. Yep. <laughs> and it turns out that the, the treatment only works in something like Virgos, you know? Which makes sense. I mean, if you think about it. Yeah, I need to brush up on my astrology, but yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I I use that example uh, as well when I teach because I think it 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 really brilliantly uh, estimates uh, or, or sorry demonstrates the challenges with effect modification and um, you know I wish I was the kind of person who had the the forethought to to answer a query like that but you know that's just not my brain doesn't think that way but it's it's such a a fantastic example. All right. Well, I think we're going to wrap up there. But Katie, thank you so much for, for joining us on this episode. You really helped me understand the chapter better. Um, and certainly some of those nuanced points uh, that I didn't understand, honestly, when I read through it the first time. So thanks very much for explaining that to us. For those of you who are not members of the Society for Epidemiologic Research, I strongly recommend you consider becoming a member. Membership gets you a discounted fee for the annual meeting, which is coming up in June in Chicago. It also gets you access to the SCR library, which has some great learning materials, seminars, and activities. Find out more at epiresearch.org. We also want to plug our sister podcast from the American Journal of Epidemiology, Casual Inference. If you like this podcast, we think you like that one. We really appreciate you listening and hope you look out for our episode coming up next month. So just a reminder that the views expressed in this podcast by both the hosts and any of our guests are ours and their views alone and do not represent the views or opinions of the Society for Epidemiologic Research.